And Megan. For an insider's look at the latest hot topics for musicians in the industry. We'll be interviewing composers, musicians, performers, and singers from around the world. All covering the music topics and answering the toughest questions you want to hear most about. This, this is, is Experience, Experience Points. Yay. Today in the studio, we have a special guest, Tim Saliver. We asked him to be on the program to discuss his many career highlights, as well as how he made music work in his life. He's been one of my mentors in my life for many years and is very instrumental in promoting my performance career. Tim is a multi-part vocalist, director, producer, and writer. He sings tenor and baritone with the San Francisco Symphony Chorus and performed on their 1995 Grammy Award-winning recording of Johannes Brahms' A German Requiem. He was the chorus master for the national tour of Symphony for Our World with National Geographic and The Legend of Zelda Symphony of Goddesses. He is the founding member and producer of Arate Singers Network, providing educated and experienced classical opera and musical theater singers to events throughout the SF Bay Area. Please welcome Tim Saliver. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very excited. I, um, now, of course, Greg doesn't know Tim, I don't think, right? Like, you guys never you met before. You probably brought his name up for Legend of Zelda. Okay. Which I really should have made room in my schedule for. Uh, like, Unbelievable. Right? Oh, he could yeah. have actually been an add-in. Like, I think we needed guys, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We always need guys. I did I get I feel like I hit you up. Is that you should every podcast at this point? Every podcast at this point we have mentioned Zelda in some format or video games in some format. So mm-hmm. they're part of the public consciousness. <laughs> I'm playing the new one it's right now on the Switch. It's Amazing. important to Greg. That's that's what counts. <laughs> um, but anyways, glad we realized this. Um, we're we're happy to sit down with you today. We want to talk about. Um, your career and we're interested to know a little bit more about you and how you started and and what you're doing now and what you brought you all the way you know sort of in between and through all of that um well so first part of your bio was about um growing up and singing in the san francisco boys choir so can you maybe is that your was that your first experience in music and like how did you Yes, my first experience in music was singing for the San Francisco Boys Chorus. And it's because my mom was a music director in the church community in San Francisco Bay Area. And it was when we were at a, a retreat in Asilomar that we met a youth pastor from the First Congregational Church in San Francisco. And he knew about the Boys Chorus, and he encouraged my mom to have me audition. So it was through those connections that I began this long career and love for music. But it was more than just singing in the Boys Chorus. It was really an educational institution where they were the only children's chorus at the time that provided children's voices for the San Francisco Opera and the San Francisco Symphony. So Do they still do that? They do provide uh, the voices for the San Francisco Opera, and occasionally they'll do um, works for the San Francisco Symphony. Mm-hmm. 
what's really key for me was that I was doing things as a child that you just thought was fun but didn't realize that could lead to a career or that the education you were getting was valuable. I mean, I was learning about music theory and decomposing Bach cantatas when I was 12. And then I later learned that the music theory that I learned was college freshman and sophomore music theory. So we were getting an early introduction into the technical AP classes. Yeah. Yeah. It was like if there were AP classes yeah. back then, I probably would have been able to pass them. But it, it was the, just the Doogie Hauser of the choir world. Yeah. I mean, we had kids that were 13 and 14 composing and it was just we that's just what we did. And that was the environment and the bubble we kind of lived in because we were surrounded by world-class musicians and conductors, and that was our training ground. I mean, just being Im totally immersed in that for four years was similar to like two years of college. Mm -hmm. Wow. Conservatory training at age 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the thing about music is that it's a lifelong learning process. Whereas if you go into business, you really don't start learning about what you're going to do until you get to college. But when you're in music, you start when you're a child and it continues, you know, to transform and lead what you do in your life. Mm, yeah, I think music for a lot of people is kind of like the first love. You know what I mean? It's a, you're either loving music or you're loving art. Right. Um, what did you do after after the boys choir? How many years were you in there? I was in there for four years. And then I ended up taking, uh, uh, going to a year of young conservatory at ACT when I was in ninth grade. And then it was after that that my family moved to Hollywood and I went to Hollywood High School. Mm -hmm. But it was then that I realized that I couldn't make singing a career because of the very simple fact that I can't trill my R's. So as a soloist, if you can't do that, you're, Most miss languages are kind of yeah, you're, you're, you're missing a major component. And yeah. that was uh, one thing that my voice teacher at the time advised that you're missing this one skill. And no matter how much I tried, I couldn't do it. And even after taking French and Italian in school and just singing for as long as I did at that time, it was at age 18 that I realized that I needed to go into a different direction. Or I knew I couldn't make singing as a performance um, my career. Mm -hmm. And at the time I did think of becoming a conductor mm -hmm. But then I realized you, you, just how much of a genius you have to be in music to be a conductor, because uh, my my favorite conductor at the time was Seiji Ozawa, 
and I sang underneath him, literally, at the San Francisco Opera wow. House when he was the San Francisco Symphony director. Mm. And the boys didn't have a riser during one rehearsal, and so we were sat right next to the director during a, a huge performance. And I'm just looking up at this guy, and his hair is flying, mm. and he's, he's Asian, and I'm thinking, wow, I want to be a conductor. Mm. Now we tell people that, and they say, what, you want to work on a train? <laughs> <laughs> I got that too. I, said, I was like, no, I want to be a symphony conductor. And then I realized that, again, there are limitations if you are not a genius in some kind of an instrument mm -hmm. that you can then translate to um, being a symphony conductor. Yeah. So um, moving on with sort of um, like the rest of your education as a, as a teenager, as a child, I guess, under the age of 18 before you made it to college. Um, what, so you, you, you didn't want to be a conductor. You had had all this experience, really high level theory and music experience singing. Um, what did you do? What did you think about doing? Well, I spent a great amount of time going to school i spent uh, seven years in school i see this bs and in information systems and an mba right well i got my mba 20 years after i got my bachelor's i did uh, go to golden gate university and that's where i discovered that i had this technical acumen which kind of fits because most musicians i know who are more in the amateur side have a day job working in technology mm. and it was in my career as a technologist that I was able to become a conductor so I was working at at the time what was Pacific Bell the phone company and I learned that they had a choir and so there was this organizational meeting and the first question came up and was asked does anybody have conducting experience? And I was like, well, <laughs> I know how to wave my arms and I know how to keep a beat. Keep a beat, I was gonna say. And I know that if I can lead these amateur singers, then certainly I probably was the most qualified person in the room, if not the building. <laughs> and so that was my introduction back into leading a choral um, group. I mean, what, what, did you do stuff on the side? Did you were you singing on the side? Did you do projects? Yeah, I, I mean, I was singing uh, for various groups in the Bay Area. Um, primarily, let's see, I was singing for the San Francisco Concert Chorale. Uh, led by John Emery Bush and I'd been singing in church choirs and I think one of the things that I'm pretty good at is watching and learning and listening and I think that's really important because most singers just sing and when you cobble together all of the advice of literally hundreds of conductors and you realize well, 
they're saying the same thing over and over so different ways different ways the same thing yeah, yeah and you realize that that education or that process of what you're hearing is education you're learning how to sing and i took that into what was the pacific bell choir we call ourselves the pacific choral company and I helped to develop it into a resource for the phone company. And not only did we end up doing, when the reason we were brought together was so that we could sing Christmas carols in the halls, we ended up singing in promotional events for Pacific Bell, uh, for their leaders, doing somewhat choreography. And then I even got, uh, them to sponsor a major event and we found choirs with IBM tandem Amdahl computers and uh, that's fascinating to me that's well it was a interesting project to try to locate other corporate choirs and then to put on a huge what we called the festival of carols so we had five corporate choirs and we had five community choruses. So we got together with the Contra Costa Children's Chorus, the Oakland Youth Chorus, the Golden Gate Boys Choir. And um, I had a, um, a, a girls chorus. And it was really just, the, the main reason it got together was to help provide funds for the school district for, be able to you know do a music education benefit and we had strong support for it uh, we had 275 singers on the stage at the paramount theater with nine different choirs the first half was all of the choirs performing a short 15 minute set and then the second half was all the singers coming together and I was able to get the Cal State University East Bay Orchestra um, as the accompaniment with 275 singers and then the, the handbell ringers from the Golden Gate Boys Choir. And because of the publicity for it, KKHI, the classical radio station at the time, agreed to record the entire concert and then play it the next weekend so that we could raise additional funds. Wow. And then the 49ers got word of it and they asked us to perform halftime uh, singing Christmas carols for one of their games. Awesome. So it was a, a enormous uh, adventure for me because I was looking at it from the standpoint that, wow, how did I get all these people to come together? And that's really what uh, solidified what I thought was my second career of being able to bring together people for music and I've been organizing reorganizing uh, choirs uh, ever since well, I see all the placards um, hanging up on, on the wall magic music days at Disneyland 
Yes. Yeah, so can you talk about? Yeah, I mean those those associate with sort of like rewinding a little bit from the point in which you just were talking about, I think, yeah. and your um, ideas and and how this the genesis of originating these choirs that are still actually in existence in the community. Right. So I developed a community course, and I wanted to give them an incentive to perform. And these are all amateurs, but of course I needed other singers that could really sing. And I, at the time I really didn't know any professional singers. So I trolled karaoke bars. <laughs> <laughs> the next star could be there, you never know. And it was a interesting endeavor to go up to some man and say, <laughs> Hi. Hi, you sing great. Beautiful voice. Can I buy you a drink? (laughs) Essentially, that was my my stick was to figure out, okay, well, I need really good singers. I have amateurs and they can sing, but they're not really good. And I needed to enhance the group. Find your ringers. Find my ringers, but find ringers that would uh, essentially be able to enhance the sound but at the same time a lot of the ringers couldn't read music mm. and so i had a great singer because they were karaoke singers because they were karaoke <laughs> singers where it like lights up the word as you sing. yeah, like, yeah. so see, you should have done it like that we had yeah. that for sarah brightman <laughs> yeah it was it was an interesting uh combination of voices that i was able to pull together and the first time that we auditioned for Disney, they came back and said, well, we're not going to be able to accept you because here are the issues. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of being able to sing on pitch mm-hmm. as well as being able to blend. And so I took their recommendations and I had told the choir and we essentially then made the improvements to be able to then be accepted back. And some of the plaques are, I mean, I have several plaques because I had different groups. And because I made these improvements, uh, we were able to sing at Disneyland uh, Magic Music Days nine times. Mm -hmm. And what came out of that was Another venture, if you'll notice over here, I have a letter from the White House uh, from Bill Clinton. And what I did was I took the idea that, hey, I sang at the White House when I was a child. And I was wondering what the voice chorus with the San Francisco Boys Chorus. And I no, it wasn't the White House. It was the Capitol Tree Lighting. Mm. I see and the Christmas tree behind them. Yeah, it was the not the. Uh, it was the national tree lighting. Sorry, because the it's the White House that provides the president and the uh, first lady for the national tree lighting. And what I ended up doing was thinking, well, maybe there's an opportunity for my choir to be able to sing for the national tree lighting. So I did some research and I contacted it, my representative, Bill Baker at the time, and their office suggested, well, 
you need to send that to the White House because they thought since the president and first lady were involved that that would be where they determined the entertainment. Only later would I find out that that was the wrong place because um, it's the U.S. Forest Service that actually is responsible for the tree lighting How odd. because they they're responsible because because yes wow. because they're responsible for the national tree being cut down out of the forest and coming it's their event super <laughs> random aside and i apologize was this located in dc or virginia dc okay yeah it's on the elliptical okay. where they put the tree okay but what ended up happening, it was, so at the time I'm working for Pacific Bell, still in my day job, and doing both Pacific Bell, uh, Pacific Choral Company, and the community choir, and also a children's choir. And it was me sitting at my desk and I received a phone call and they said, hi, we'd like to speak to Tim Salver. And I said, oh, hi. And said, we'd like to invite you to come sing. And I said, really, who is this? I said, well, this is the White House social office. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, and I'm thinking, and, I the phone. and I'm yeah. thinking in my head, oh, cool. We're gonna yeah. be invited to sing at the tree lighting. And they're talking about it and they're saying, well, we want you to come to Washington and perform uh, probably three times because we have these events that are occurring over this period of time and I go where do you want me to sing I said and they said well we want you to sing inside the White House I go not the tree lighting so they said <laughs> they said no because we have these events that are occurring in the White House and we heard your recording and we want you to sing for us. I go, had a moment of silence and I almost nearly cried. And I go, okay, so you want me to bring my choir for about three days to come sing in Washington DC at the White House. In the White House. In, in, in the White House. <laughs> and they said, yes. And they said, okay, great. I'll tell the choir, can I get your phone number? <laughs> and, uh, and so I had choir rehearsal that night. Oh, and so guys, here's the situation. So I told them, I said, well, unfortunately, we weren't asked to sing at the tree light. <laughs> and then I said, we were asked to sing inside the White House. And like everybody went nuts. And, and no, sure. actually, it was like Science. more of, more of doubt they were like oh really because here's the oh. thing these were a bunch of amateur singers who had only been together for a year even less than a year they thought you were joking they thought i was joking one and two they wanted proof <laughs> so well, so like here's the phone number <laughs> so <laughs> so i'm i'm thinking in my head like of course they would doubt it because here, if I were a singer thinking, Santa is coming to town. He yeah, wants to sing for it. yeah, yeah. I I don't know how this would would pan out since their self esteem about who they are as singers is still developing. Mm -hmm. 
but I've been pumping them up and saying, hey, you can do this because we had just performed, you know, previously at Disneyland uh, in August and it was September that I sent the recording to the White House and then it was early October that I got the word that we were accepted. So not only was there this, wow, we have to do this in a very short amount short of time, amount of time. <laughs> but we also have to figure out how this is true. I'm thinking as a singer. Yeah. And so the next day I called the White House. Did they make a mistake? And I, I said, <laughs> I told them, well, my choir doesn't believe that they were invited. They think I'm joking. I was wondering, could you send me... <laughs> A letter. written letter and they said oh yeah we'd be happy to and I was like oh great thank you and and I'm and so I got the letter in the mail and I immediately copied it and sent it to our board and they were like oh man this is serious and I said yeah this is so are we gonna do it or not and they said well yeah, <laughs> we're going to do it. And it was a matter of, of, you know, a few days that we were able to pull together. And so the thing about this is that, again, I'm doing this without knowing anything about how to do this. And you just kind of go in. What better like, way to learn? Fake yeah. it till you make it. Yeah, I mean, it's like learning a piece of music. We've never done this music before, so we're going to go through the process. So we ended up... How many up, pieces did you have to prepare? Uh, we prepared probably 20 pieces. Uh, we sang in three different parties. What was the scheduling like for, for that day? Did you do a morning set and then an afternoon, evening, or was it... Uh, we did we did or... we did one set in the evening, mm -hmm. and then we did the next day we did uh, two sets. But what we wanted to also do is that we wanted to have more for more of a performance because we decided that we should perform in other locations. So I got performances at Union Station at the National Gallery of Art. That's an awesome place to perform. The acoustics? Uh, oh my gosh, the acoustics <laughs> are so great there because you're performing in the National Gallery of Art, but then they have underground tunnels. Oh, wow. So what was what we were told is that we while we performed in the National Gallery of Art, we could be heard oh. throughout the museum in other That's parts so cool. of the Smithsonian. <laughs> so it was like, and people were coming up to us saying how great we sounded. Uh, funny story when we were singing in the White House one of the kids was so nervous that he had to throw up and, <laughs> and he got off stage hopefully or well what? he did he came <laughs> off the stage and his mother happened to be you know one of the um, uh, uh, volunteer uh, chaperones and she brought him over to a fireplace where there was a bunch of poinsettias and he threw up in the poinsettias. <laughs> Did they mask the odor or white poinsettias? It was like <laughs> clockwork magic. Oh, wow. The Secret Service called it in and the housekeeping came right away 
and they took away the poinsettias that were thrown up on and then any others were cut. They had the leaves cut, so they, you know, and then they replaced it. I mean, sick, I, mean, I mean, it happened so quick. And, wow. and uh, I didn't, I mean, it happened so fast. I didn't even realize what had happened. So I'm telling you this from what they told me. I didn't see it. With the Secret I, Service? I didn't know the, the, the mother. Guys in the dark seats and the sunglasses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah, I mean. <laughs> clean up. Clean up on all five. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I think that party was the party for the CIA anyway. Jeez. Yeah, because we sang for the we sang for the what democratic a swell party. This yeah, is. we sang for the democratic national um, party in the next day, and then for another major group. But it was uh, us singing in the George Washington room, where the entertainers. Um, I mean, when we were sitting in the green room, we saw the photos of all the other celebrities that had performed in the in the White House. And then we we got to the that room and there's this big portrait of George Washington, mm. and then the other room that we performed in was the Lincoln Room, but we we had such a great experience, and that was the first of three invitations that we got. So they invited us back the next year, and I brought a smaller group, and in that one we sang uh, for Diane Feinstein in her office. And then the following year, uh, we got invited again, but there we sang at the Capitol tree lighting for Congress. And we sang again for the National Gallery of Art, as well as for the National Cathedral and the Kennedy Center. So, I mean... In, That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was... And uh, you had a big enough choir, uh, even with the first time that you went, to have everyone go. Did everybody go? Like, because yeah, I know that that sometimes we had they, they fly you out and put you up, or you're responsible no, no, for your lodging. No, no, we're or... responsible oh, for our own fun. lodging. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's like but when we somebody had, does that, you have to fundraise. And... The thing is, we had 68 mm. singers and 93 people all together that went. Wow, that first time, yeah. their families and want to yeah. go, and, right? Yeah. Chaperones, and then chaperones. The yeah. third time, I couldn't do it three years in a row. That's why I only brought a smaller group. The second year, the the third year, it was over a hundred twenty people going. Mm. I mean, it was a big group. It's a bigger group, and we had over eighty five singers. Mm -hmm. And it was just a remarkable experience in mm. being able to. You know, give my singers that opportunity, but then to realize that me myself, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, the things that I put together and organized, and it was really key to. I think it's key to any uh, anyone that's leading a group to do something that's out of their comfort zone. Um, when we first, when we got the first rejection. That just told me what we needed to improve on. It didn't just, it, we didn't quit. So to go from being rejected at Disneyland to then singing in the same year for, you know, in the White House. How is that not a metaphor for life? <laughs> Rejection is not the end of the world. We talk yeah. about uh, on this podcast a lot in our previous guests, we've talked a lot about grit and determination and resilience in situations of adversity. And uh, I think uh, a good sort of like angle with that is, okay, you, you individually as the director of this group, 
had the grit and determination and resilience because you were an adult Mm -hmm. and the people under you were not adults. And, and as a leader of maybe not everybody has that same grit and determination in the choir, right? And you have a choir of so many people. How do you inspire grit and resilience and determination when you receive a negative response like that? I think you have to model it. Or for one, I mean, if you yourself are feeling like, oh my gosh, we got rejected, we're really bad, we're, you know, we'll see how we can improve. It was really more of, hey, I think they gave us an opportunity to turn this around and this is what we need to work on. So how I turned that around was probably just, that hard work of providing parts tapes. I mean, back then they were really tapes, cassette tapes. Yeah, they were cassette. And you recorded tapes. them how? You you hit the hit the record button on the tape recorder and played on the piano, or how was this? At the time, I had I had the I had whatever music uh, program there was at the time to be able to okay. play out the parts. Okay. And I had a MIDI piano attached to a okay. computer. And I just played out all the parts, and everybody got their individual part tape, and it was twenty. You these out of rehearsal. Those uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty for the advent of email and cell phones. And... Twenty songs, uh, all the individual parts, all even all the uh, you know if there was a six part part, mm-hmm. then yeah, I would do each individual because I knew that everybody needed it. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, something that impacted me um, when I was growing up and that is uh, the Danver Girls Choir. Um, it's still led by Ken Abrams as far as I know and um, the origination of that you had a huge part of and involvement in and so let's talk about what led you to create um, the Danville Girls Choir, which is what was not called the Danville Girls Choir. Right. Started. When the origination of the Danville Girls Chorus was the Valley Community Girls Chorus, um, which I founded. And I knew that there was this void of a, what would be considered a music education resource for girls in the Tri-Valley. And I modeled it after my experience in the San Francisco Boys Chorus as well as the San Francisco Girls Chorus. And I even talked to a board member of the San Francisco Girls Chorus who lived in Danville. And she mentioned that, yeah, the only reason that she was traveling was to San Francisco was because that's the only place that her girls could get that level of a music education. So I thought, well, I knew that what my strength was, was in organizing and pulling together um, an, a team. So I hired a voice teacher uh, to be the voice expert and then a couple of other music teachers to lead the younger girls. Um, my role was essentially to develop the program and be the artistic director and have the vision And because of the amount of commitment required to be in the chorus, uh, 
it conflicted with all the other activities of the parents and their families and the girls. And because music was not high priority, athletics was. And after that first concert where we did the Festival of Carols, there was a, a letter sent to the board saying that I wasn't qualified to do my job because I didn't have a music degree. And because of that, um, there was a sense that I didn't, um, didn't have the right vision or that I didn't have the right expectations. And I thought, well, you, when you have a program that you want to bring greatness, you probably should you know, continue in that form so that you're you're bringing something that doesn't already exist to but the it community. Was it was my vision, and and even though sense. I didn't, and I think primarily because um, of this letter, the board the board backed me because it was my vision and to create uh, a highly polished children's course. Because the only other one that was coming close would have been um, Iris Lamana's Contra Costa Children's Chorus, which was in Pleasant Hill at the time. And again, that was too far for the majority of parents, especially if you're looking at having parents from, at the time we were based in, um, you know, in Danville, but I felt it was a Tri-Valley experience. And, Livermore, Pleasanton, Dublin, San Ramon. That's why it was called the Valley Community Girls Chorus, to really appeal to the entire Tri-Valley. And the goal was, well, the girls should have an opportunity that they probably wouldn't get in other areas. And it was through the conflict with the parents that I knew that I... I couldn't accomplish what I wanted, and so I resigned. And the, the same voice teacher then who had a contact with uh, Ken um, asked him to come in, and he's been the director ever since. And it was the following year, I believe, that they changed their name to Danville uh, Girls Chorus. I, I, um, I wonder what would have happened if you had stayed, regardless if Ken had come in or not, which Ken is, is a... An amazing conductor, an mm -hmm. amazing musician. Um, yeah. He taught me a lot, you know, when I was in, in Danver Girls Choir, and I was in it for many years and, and uh, did a bunch of tours. And, you know, I, 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 I guess, I don't know, I was part of the height of that group, maybe. Um, and, I, and I don't know, to be, to be honest, like what the organization is today. I have not at all researched that. Um, Did you learn music theory? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the the program was fully modeled after the programs in San Francisco. Yeah. And, and the focus would have been education, but more so also on performance, because I believe that in order to increase your skills and talent, you need to perform. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to perform as much. And that was really the key issue that told me that I'm not going to be able to accomplish what I would like if they're not performing as much. Because 
when you're performing, I, you know, I thought, you know, what's a band that only performs twice a year? Not a very good one. No, I mean, if if all you do is There's spend, no point to it. if all you do is spend all your time in rehearsal, and you prepare for one or two concerts, I thought, you know, you're you're spending a lot of time in rehearsal, but not a lot of time in preparing people on how to perform. Yeah, and and that I was. I think it's uh, an issue with the parents, though, because if we, you know, you. The people that are doing the most of the complaining are definitely not the kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, right. They probably want to do like, hey, let's go, let's go, let's go. Right. And and the parents are doing, well, we're the taxis over here. You know what I mean? We're, we're the taxi line over here. We're bringing our kids. And, and, it's, and it's a, you have to not only be an educator of the, the, the singers that you're given that want to participate, but then also of their parents. Especially yeah. if you have parents involved, right? Yeah. Because you have to educate them as well. They don't understand. They're not there at the rehearsals. They don't understand the gravity and even the importance of what you're teaching these kids. Right. They hear whatever their kid wants to tell them kind of thing. Yeah. At the end of the day, kind of like school, right? You never really get the true picture. Right. And I, I feel like... How was school? Fine, whatever. It was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And like I feel like at the end of the day, the... Parents that put their kids in an activity like choir, but a choir that is rooted like like a San Francisco, San Francisco Boys Choir, Girls Choir, that is rooted in excellence, excellence, excellence. Right. Not just average. You're in a high school choir right. or in your junior high choir, your middle school choir. Whatever. I mean, no excellence because when, you're training the future of music. You're training the future. I musicians. believe the children are the future. <laughs> Um, but like you're you're training future musicians to then go out in the world and do professional things. Hopefully, not everybody, but like like you, you are a you are a product, a good product of San Francisco Boys Choir doing excellence, producing excellence, and expecting excellence. And if you weren't on board as a parent or as a student of that, mm -hmm. then you were like, bye, see ya. We don't need your money. Like, you know what I mean? And that's how it needs to be on those types of things. Now, schools, high schools and junior highs and K through 12 education, that's where you can kind of say, um, I understand if somebody's not fully on board because mm -hmm. it's either a requirement to be in choir or um uh, like an extra class or something like right. that you're just interested in. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, you could be in choir and not have to do sports. Yeah. And usually at a school level, you only do two or three, if that. I mean, at the highest kind of, you know what I mean, the amount of uh, semester uh, performances. But when you're in a community choir, you better perform. Well, and that's where the genesis of the Valley Community Girls Chorus was that building a music program built on excellence and education. You, I wanted to model what the other communities had. Why not have the same in the Tri-Valley where even the public schools were cutting back in music? Shocking. And, and arts funding. There, was, there was agreement with the Girls Chorus board member that yes, this community needed to have a similar type uh, um, education program. And I knew Iris's uh, program, 
you know, was built on performance. And, and really what was key, and, you know, I look at, I look back on it now and I say, why well, I'm glad I created it because one of the other teachers that I hired when the program then, you know, was uh, not going in the right direction, she decided to, to found the Contabella Children's Choir mm. in Livermore, which also became a excellent music program. Mm. And, you know, she, she created something that was somewhat built on what I had put together. So it was taking a risk. I took a risk. Um, and I think there are many more musicians out there because of the work that my teachers, myself, the people that I inspired, including, you know, hopefully you, um, to be able to want to perform and to, you know, be in a life filled with music. So I wanted to ask you about um, what's hanging on the wall behind me, which is a, um, a framed um, picture of a certificate uh, stating that you were a part of a Grammy award-winning album uh, from the San Francisco Symphony Choir, in which you are a member, a singer, and you have been for many, many years. Yes. Um, talk about that and how that all came about, and then what happened after that point. Yeah, the award was for the Brahms Requiem with Herbert Blomstedt as the conductor and Vance George as the choral director. And we recorded that in 1993 and won the best choral performance in 1995. And the Grammy Awards or the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences is all about the technology of recording, uh, recording voice, um, instrumental, just the whole recording industry and what goes on within it. And there are advocates for copyright as well as for artists' performance rights. I think for me, what was my impetus to going was really to be a part of a community of, again, people who perform all the time. And when you go to the Grammy Awards, essentially you're going to like the greatest hits concert of all the top artists in the world. And you're seeing live performance, but the, the awards that are being given out are for the recorded performance. When you think about the San Francisco Symphony, Symphony Media, SFS Media, um, which is their own uh, independent label, they come out with some very fine product. And that's what you're doing as a musician, as a singer, is that you're producing a product with your performance. And if you can get it recorded, even better to be able to archive it on YouTube and have future generations to be able to refer to it. And that's, I think, will help to continue people's appreciation of music. 
Fast forwarding to the future, you have a network of singers, in which I am one of those singers, um, but we're also instrumentalists and musicians. And I think it was really important to you to compile a, a number of different singers of various different skill sets um, so that not only can you compile a makeshift choir at the last minute for a, a major event, um, we did Legends of Zelda Symphony in concert, we did a, a, a thing of National Geographic. Um, Symphony for Our World. Symphony for Our World, number of times. We've sung with Sarah Brightman. You've sung with Andrea Bocelli. Um, mm-hmm. Josh Groban as well? No, no, no. No. But, okay. but so, but yeah, I mean. The idea that, like, if there, if there was a need for a choir, you wanted to provide a network and, and use your marketing and network skills and business skills in that area to help funnel in that business to yourself. Um, or and to other singers in the area, right? Right. So how Arte Singers came about was I was in a San Francisco symphony chorus rehearsal, and I happened to be sitting behind two sopranos, and they were lamenting the fact that there are no jobs in the San Francisco Bay Area, and and I later asked them, so how is it that you do get your jobs? And they say, well, just by networking, but we don't have a big enough network and they are fabulous voices but an inability to expand their career and i think that's not something that's learned i mean you have to just know who to go to or or have friends that know what your voice is like and who the directors are so I've been in the Bay Area a long time, so I know a lot of the directors. And what I started out doing was gathering a list of singers that were interested in working more mm-hmm. and doing more research about what the market is like in San Francisco. And it's interesting, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there are 6,000 professional sopranos. <laughs> I believe it. And there's about... Uh, I think 3,000 mezzo-sopranos 2,700 tenors <laughs> I was going to say two tenors and, <laughs> and really like 1,500 basses yeah. bass baritones and for the sopranos it's just a difficult market and I started looking at well how the is guitar it guitar players of the uh... yeah <laughs> Yeah. Kind of a dime a dozen kind of thing. So it was really a matter of thinking, well, well, if I put together this network, what kind of jobs could I get them? And in the holidays, that was easy. Christmas caroling. What year did you start that? I think it was 2016. Okay. And so I had done Christmas caroling before, but very informally. And... (laughs) Then I started getting calls about doing other performances like weddings, funerals. And I was like, even getting requests from other directors, you know, do you know a soprano or alto or tenor or bass that can come in and do this Bach cantata? I was like, sure. And I would just tap into my network and suddenly I found a singer a job. And I know it's difficult for singers to get jobs because they're doing you know so many things just to cobble together a career so really that was the entire goal 
was to help other singers find work. And, and that is still it's, it's still the goal. work for Ken Abrams, for goodness sakes. He's had that position for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a yeah. recruiter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally, you know, a career of creating memories, moments, experiences for singers and being able to give them opportunities that they themselves wouldn't have been afforded. I mean, it's funny, I, I, I'm singing with Livermore Valley Opera and within it, I've been able to find jobs for five of the singers in that chorus, either through singing with Zelda, um, symphony, symphony for a world, church jobs, or singing at a wedding or a funeral. Mm-hmm. What do you think that you do best at right now? What is your has it changed over the years, at? or has it always been a through line? Like this is this is generally what I'm best at, and I think what I'm best at is creating opportunities. I mean, it's it's a finding people jobs and being able to give them their dream of being able to perform on stage. Do you have a business card? I'll be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that you have failed at in your life, or even currently, or that you're still working at? I believe that it's. Personally, not being able to trill my R's, even though I've done, still working on I'm that. still working on it. <laughs> but it's, you know, I do still have a desire to perform, and I think what I failed at is not being able to pursue more of a solo uh, career. You, you certainly haven't failed at define like every vocal fuck in existence. Yeah. So what is your approach <clears throat> like? Uh, when you're saying tenor, do you phonate a certain way, baritone? Do you visualize a certain way, alto, countertenor? Is there a different? There, there is a difference. I'm not I trying mean, to get all your trade secrets. I'm just curious. It, it, it is. I mean, when I'm singing as a bass, it's certainly different than singing as a tenor, countertenor, mm-hmm. or alto or soprano. Mm-hmm. Again, it's learning about mimicking the voices and mm-hmm. the sounds that they make. And when I'm singing as a soprano, I'm singing very much more forward mm-hmm. and with more of a ping. Yeah. And with the uh, resonance of just trying to drive the sound. Mm-hmm. When I'm singing as a bass, mm-hmm. it's more about how much I can resonate within my body to create a feeling of sound. Because I don't have a big bass voice. And if you think about... Is it almost like falsetto, but in the opposite direction, in a way? Or <laughs> Well, if you think about a bass voice, it has this resonance and openness. It does, yeah. It and you, you look at it from the standpoint of, well, if I'm up here and my soprano voice mm-hmm. is very small and tiny, but it has some projection to it. With like a lot of things, starts with the speaking voice, and then you, yeah, add melody on top of it, maybe, or... Well, it's it's first getting into what I hear in my head mm-hmm. is what I'm believing is the right voice, mm-hmm. the right sounds. Mm-hmm. 
And when you're singing in these different voices, you're having to mimic what is supposed to be the blended sound. Because mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, yeah, I've, sing, I've sung solo as a bass all the way up to soprano, which mm-hmm. is really weird to me. Uh, if it isn't weird to this audience, (laughs) (laughs) but it's about mimicking a sound that the audience is expecting. Of course. But then when they see me singing, they're not, I mean, I sang the alto solo to the Vivaldi Gloria. And when my voice came out, I'm looking on the video the people are looking for who the person is that's singing, even though they don't realize that I that I'm the one that's out in front and singing it. They're looking for the female alto that is singing the alto solo. And then it's like, oh, wait, it's that guy. Well, we want to thank you for coming on our podcast and talking about um, your life and all of your work, um, which I, I feel like is is such a huge part of my life too. So I want to thank you for inspiring and for originating and for continuing to create opportunity after opportunity for myself. Um, we'll get Greg roped in there. Of course. You know, <laughs> he's a singer too. So if you're doing Super Mario, I don't care what I'm doing. I'll drop. Greg's going to have to be one of your singers for I, sure. Uh, I um, did a Super Mario theme <laughs> wedding. And actually uh, created the four-part version to the theme. Yes. To the Sumo Mario version. I, I need your card. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the program. And uh, we wish you all the best in your career and in your opportunities. Well, thank you very much. Points, the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and through Spotify. Special thanks for the use of our theme music by composer Michael Gill from his album, Blues for Lazarus. If you would like to follow the latest news about our podcast and upcoming guests, please visit our Facebook page at Experience Points the Podcast, where you can leave us questions or comments.